Well, good morning, and uh, I hope that you have marked your calendars for tonight for the spring choir concert. An incredible opportunity to continue to worship and rejoice in the gospel uh, with our dear brothers and sisters who minister to us so well. So be back here tonight for the spring concert. As you're turning to James chapter 2, I want to remind you of an event from the Old Testament when God sent the prophet Samuel to select a king. And he's looking at the different brothers and he's sure that the tallest and the, the strongest is the one. But one by one, the Lord tells him to pass them by until he gets to David, the shepherd boy. At the end of that event in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God tells Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That first part of that phrase is important. Man looks at the outward appearance. This is something that is a common trait to all peoples in all times. Man does look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The Lord told this to the prophet Samuel to prevent him from overlooking David. David, whom no one thought would amount to much, but God knew was a man after his own heart. Someone who would become the greatest king of Israel and the forefather of Jesus, the Messiah. All of that would have been missed if Samuel hadn't heeded this admonition, not to look at the outward appearance, but to look as God does at the heart. When we judge by appearances, we miss out on incredible things and incredible people. But as James is going to tell us in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, when we judge by appearances, we not only miss out on good blessings, we also sin. Read with me James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
I want to begin by reminding ourselves of the context in which this passage occurs. Although chapter 2, verse 1 begins a new section, there is a clear connection to the last verse of chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 27, James writes, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. As the preceding context, chapter 1, verse 27, shows us, the care of the poor and the needy and the helpless is extremely important to God, and therefore, it must be to us as well. God cares about the poor. He cares about the afflicted and the oppressed. And in dozens of scriptures throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, he commands us to care for the poor, for the orphan, the widow, the afflicted, and the oppressed. That's why here at Calvary we do the Bread of Life ministry, the care closet, and then the various benevolence ministries that the deacons lead so well. That's why you gave so generously to the needs in Uganda last year and to Ukraine this year. We do those things because we understand as James 1.27 says, that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And it is that biblical context, not any modern context, that we should have in mind as we study chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. I've entitled this message, Recovering a Biblical Understanding of the Sin of Partiality, because the waters of this topic have been so muddied by unbiblical and divisive modern ideologies that there is a need to try to clear that from your mind so that you can then receive the pure milk of the word. So that's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to lay aside and clear your mind of the muddy waters of modern controversies and of human ideologies and to focus your attention on the pure water of God's inerrant word. It is time and well past time to clear our hearts and our minds of the human ideologies of pundits and activists and start listening to the divine doctrines of the apostles and prophets. We want to move from the pundits and the activists to the prophets and the apostles. That's what I'm encouraging you to do. I want to clear the deck and I want to start with the pure milk of the word and build something beautiful from there. The way to avoid the dangerous errors of the various critical theories that are out there and the tragic divisions that have occurred in so many churches recently is to diligently follow a sound theological method. We need a sound theological method. If we start with modern theories developed by human beings and then try to either support them or oppose them using the Bible, we're working backwards anachronistically. We're doing eisegesis, reading our meaning into the text, not exegesis, which is deriving God's meaning and his authorial intent from the text. If you start with the wrong framework, you will arrive at the wrong solution. There's no way to arrive at the right solution if you begin with the 
wrong framework. It's like getting on the wrong train. No matter how much you try to turn a train, its tracks are set. And so we need to make sure that we are starting in the train station of God's word and we're traveling down the tracks laid for us by Christ. Only then can we get to the desired destination, which is true biblical unity and true biblical justice. This is, by the way, why the pastors who foolishly start with secular social theories and try to integrate them with Scripture wind up pleasing neither God nor man. They want to please everybody, but in their attempt to please everybody, they please nobody. You know, if you're a cook, you know that if you smush garlic and chocolate together, it's hard for anyone to stomach. It's not sweet to anyone or savory to anyone. So at CBC, we're committed to following a strictly biblical recipe, a strictly biblical recipe for responding with love and compassion and unity to the tough issues of our times, such as poverty and class and race. When we follow the biblical recipe, the good shepherd never fails to provide us with answers that are truly sweet to every soul. He feeds his sheep, all of them. And so we look to his word, what he has to say. We clear the deck of the rubbish and rubble of human philosophies and ideologies, and we build that which is derived exclusively from the holy word of God. That's a sound theological method. So that's what we want to do. I want to look, I'm going to use the illustration of a recipe, and I want to look at the three key ingredients or three key steps in the biblical recipe for true biblical unity and biblical harmony. Biblical recipes for Christian unity and biblical justice, three key steps. And step number one is to throw away the rotten ingredients of common human prejudices. The first step in the biblical recipe for Christian unity and biblical justice is to throw away the rotten ingredients of common human prejudices. You have to cut out what is rotten and throw it away. Look at chapter two, verse one. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism or partiality. Now, as we look at this verse, I want you to notice how James begins. He begins with the words, my brethren. He affirms the relationship that he shares with them in Christ, that they are brethren, they're brothers and sisters in the Lord. He affirms the relationship. And by doing so, James gives us a wonderful example of how to begin a hard conversation on tough issues with other Christians. We need to begin by communicating that we are brethren, that we are communicating from the perspective of a concerned brother, not from the position of an adversary who's trying to play gotcha. He says, my brethren, and then he begins to exhort them. Next, I also want you to notice that James reminds them 
of the common ground they have in Jesus Christ. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He reminds them of the ultimate and the only ground of Christian unity, which is our common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all, says Ephesians chapter 4. And James is reminding them of that unity that is found only in Christ. Don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. And notice the aspects of that ground of unity that he points out. James reminds them that they all believe that Jesus is the glorious one. He says, our faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it's actually the Lord Jesus, the glory one. The Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. He's the glorious one. During his incarnation, Jesus radiated the Shekinah glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he returns, he will return in glory. He is Jesus Christ, the glory. So if you're looking for something noble and glorious, find it in him and build it upon his foundation. James then reminds them that they all believe that Jesus is Lord. He is the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That means he has authority and that they have committed themselves to following his commands cheerfully and fully. So the question before us is then not what human beings think, this group or that group or this people or those people, but rather what does the Lord say about this? What does the king of all kings say about this? What does the good shepherd of the sheep say about this? It is his opinion and his alone that matters. He is Lord. And then finally, James reminds them that Jesus is the Christ, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Greek term for Messiah, the savior of the world. He's reminding them that they've been saved from sin by Christ and therefore they must follow him and live lives according to his will. So in verse 1, James begins by affirming their shared relationship and their shared faith. They, they are brethren and they stand on the same foundation, the foundation of faith in Christ. This is a great example of how to begin a hard conversation. When we have to confront a fellow Christian over sin or error, as James is going to do here, we should follow his example by first affirming our shared relationship and our shared faith. This is yet another example of how the scripture not only teaches us what to do, but how to do it. Now, after affirming the relationship that he shares with them and the faith that they have in common, James then speaks the truth boldly, clearly, and in love. He doesn't hold back from confronting their sin strongly and clearly. He points out that they were acting in a way incompatible with the faith that they shared in common. Their actions of partiality or favoritism were incompatible with their faith in Christ because he does not show favoritism. He is impartial, and the scriptures testify about that fact repeatedly. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, for example, verse 17, we read, The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. 
So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. This, by the way, is clearly a passage that James has in mind. Keep in mind, in chapter 1, verse 27, he mentions orphans and widows. So does Deuteronomy chapter 10. He mentions not showing partiality. So does Deuteronomy chapter 10. And Deuteronomy chapter 10 roots it in the attributes and character of God. He does not show partiality. The same thing is affirmed by the Apostle Paul in in Romans chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. When Paul writes, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God, none. The Apostle Peter had to learn this lesson. Remember, he had been swayed into hypocrisy, refusing to eat with the Gentiles, and Paul had to come up, he says, and stand nose to nose with him to rebuke him over this. And God had to actually show Peter a vision. Remember the vision of the sheets and all of that to show him that God had accepted the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter testifies to the change that happened in his heart. It says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. You see, man looks at the external appearance, but God looks at the heart. Peter says, look, I understand it now. There's no partiality with God and people from every nation who fear him and does what is right is welcome to him. In other words, it's their character, not their appearance, which matters. God looks at the heart. There's no partiality with him, Peter says. And Peter learned that lesson well because he writes about it in 1 Peter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he says, It is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy, if you address as Father The one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. See, God does not show partiality. There's no partiality with God. Therefore, an attitude of partiality is incompatible with faith in Christ. If you belong to Christ, you must become like him and he does not show partiality. But people from every nation who fear him and do what is good, he accepts. So James is exhorting those early believers. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism or with a heart of partiality. The word here, the word translated as either favoritism or partiality is a word that, as far as we know, only appears in the New Testament. It doesn't appear in the Septuagint. It doesn't appear in any other extant Greek literature that we're aware of. We may discover it at some point, but at least at this point, only in the New Testament does this word appear. And it's a very interesting one, perhaps one that was coined by the New Testament writers specifically to address this kind of sin. And by the way, that means we should be adopting biblical terminology for this issue. Let's use this term. What is the term used here? It's interesting. It's a term 
which literally means to prefer a face. That's what is said here. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude in which you prefer a face. But interestingly, the word is a plural noun. It's actually in which you have preferences for faces. Don't live out your faith in such a way where you have preferences for certain faces. This plural noun is very important interpretively because it indicates that there are many reasons why someone might prefer a face. Many reasons why they might show favoritism to one kind of person and dishonor another. So while James in the context is going to give us the illustration of economic reasons why someone might prefer a face, his grammar in verse 1 shows that he has other reasons in mind also. In fact, that use of the plural noun in verse 1 indicates he has in mind all reasons or any reasons that human beings might have to show favoritism and partiality. So again, while economic discrimination is the illustration James gives, this passage is certainly applicable to ethnic discrimination as well, as well as to any other form. Both are examples of preferring a face. And preferring a face, James says, is sin. It is sin. It makes you, he says in verse 9, a transgressor of God's royal law. So step number one in the biblical recipe for true unity and harmony is to throw away the rotten ingredients of common human prejudices. Throw them away. So I want to dig into the heart a little bit here. I'll use the same terms that James does. My brethren, you who share a common faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do you prefer faces? Do you prefer a certain face when you're hiring a worker, when you're choosing friends, when you're extending invitations? Do you prefer a certain face when you choose whom to sit next to in church? If so, you are committing the sin of partiality regardless of why you justify doing it. Now, contrary to erroneous modern theories of social justice, two wrongs can't make a right. You can't solve one kind of partiality by promoting another kind of partiality. When you return evil for evil, the result is just an endless cycle of revenge, and that's what we see through human history. Like an out-of-control car, human societies lurch from overcorrection to overcorrection and from disastrous crash to disastrous crash because they don't understand the true ground of true unity and of true harmony. So the biblical call goes out to everyone to stop swerving, to stop preferring a face, whether that's a rich face, a poor face, a white face, a black face, a young face, or an old face, or any other kind of face. In fact, listen very carefully to what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 has to say about the Christian worldview when it comes to how we view other people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14, it begins with, the heart motive of love. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, 
So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. He goes on to say, because anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, and now God has given us the ministry of reconciliation to declare the reconciliation of God and man and the union of sinners with their Savior and therefore their union with one another in one body in Christ. We recognize no one according to the flesh. We don't view them that way anymore. We stop looking at the external appearance and we start looking at the heart because we now belong to God and we want to look at people through his eyes. Now after using that plural noun in verse 1 to warn against any and all forms of partiality, in verses 2 through 3, James gives an example of the most common reason for partiality and that is money. The most common reason people show favoritism to one face over another is ultimately rooted in money. He says in verses 2 through 3, If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place. But you say to the poor man, Stand over there or uh, down by my footstool. It says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? In verse 2, the word James uses is gold-fingered. It says, suppose a gold-fingered man comes in to your assembly. In other words, this guy, to put it in kind of the youth terms, this guy comes in displaying some serious bling. He's gold-fingered. And James goes on to say this guy's clothes are fancy. He's got fancy clothes. It's a word used to describe clothes that are especially bright or shiny or impressive. In fact, the word for fancy clothes is the same word used in Acts chapter 10 verse 30 to describe the shining clothes of the angel that appeared to Cornelius. In other words, this guy comes in shining like an angel. The gold is shining. His clothes are shining. I mean, he is dressed to impress, and impress he does, because the people immediately are like, oh, here's a good seat for you. And then behind him comes in a man, dirty clothes. And with hardly a thought, they're like, oh, sit, stand in the back, or you, know, you can sit on the floor next to our, my footstool. This is a clear example of preferring a face, showing partiality, showing favoritism. And against this, James thunders in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? He rebukes them for making distinctions among themselves. This type of behavior, James says, is a violation of the unity of the body of Christ. It is divisive. It destroys the unity that is described in Galatians 3.27, which says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are one, how then are you making these distinctions, these divisions amongst yourselves? Interestingly, that word to make distinctions is a word which comes from the same exact Greek root which was used earlier in chapter 1, verse 6, which describes doubting. Chapter 1, verse 6, he must ask in faith without any doubting. That word doubting and then the word distinctions 
are from the same exact Greek root. Well, what does the Greek root mean? It means to divide in two. You see, the doubter is divided in two within himself. He, he's neither hot nor cold. He can't decide whether he can trust God or distrust God, whether he believes or doesn't believe. He's a doubter. He's internally divided. He's a double-minded man, James calls him. That's his problem internally, but externally, you can be double-minded as well. You can create distinctions. You can divide in two between us and them, between those you prefer and those you do not. That's wrong, says James. It comes, he says, from evil motives. He says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? It comes from an evil motive, the showing of partiality. These prejudices come from evil motives. It comes from the idolatry of self, the proud exaltation of you and your type or your appearance or your brand of person. It's all from self-idolatry, from an evil motive. I think we need to keep in mind what we learned in our introduction because it should shock us a little bit. Remember from the introduction, to whom was James writing? The majority of his readers were people who had fled as refugees from Jerusalem to all of these other cities. They were poor people who had fled with nothing on their back. The majority of people in the assembly would have been poor people, and yet they themselves show partiality towards the rich. It might seem odd that they would do this until you realize that having a rich man join your assembly could be very, very beneficial. Whereas, adding yet one more poor refugee would just mean another mouth to feed, limited resources being stretched even further. So what did they do? They rolled out the red carpet for the rich guy. Because they selfishly thought he might be their ticket to a better life. Individually, the guy who greeted him, or perhaps even as a congregation. Because most of the people in the assembly were poor themselves, the arrival of just yet another poor refugee with nothing but the dirty clothes on his back, clothes perhaps dirty from this long journey from Jerusalem that he had just made, or perhaps dirty for another reason, but dirty nonetheless, what could he do for them? Nothing. He probably had needs. So he seemed like a burden, not a blessing. So they showed favoritism toward the person who could help them and discrimination towards the person who needed their help. Therefore, James says, their behavior flowed from selfish, covetous, evil motives. So what's in your heart? If a poor person joins your life group, do you silently groan because you know they'll have needs you'll feel obliged to meet. If poor refugees arrive in our town, do we subtly groan because we know they'll have a lot of needs we'll feel obliged to meet? Ultimately, these things are issues of the heart. They're a question of whether we have a self-centered or God-centered mentality. You see, if the rich man comes in, he may give you something. But if the poor man comes in, you may to give him something. 
So what do you believe? Do you believe what the Lord Jesus Christ taught when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive? If it is more blessed to give than to receive, we should be excited if the Lord brings the poor to us. We should be excited if the poor move near us. We should be excited if the poor join our church. We should be excited if they come to our life group and our small group. Because it means opportunities to give, and it's more blessed to give than to receive. But if you're selfishly focused, focused on getting rather than giving, you'll inwardly groan when the poor man walks in, and you'll rejoice when the rich man does. Oh, good, someone who doesn't have any needs. Good, someone who can actually maybe help meet my needs. Your reaction reveals your heart. So James exhorts us to follow the first step in God's recipe for true unity, which is to throw away the rotten ingredients of common human prejudices and self-interest. Step two, then, is to use the righteous ingredients, righteous ingredients which are revealed through God's sovereign decrees. Look at verse five. He says, listen, my beloved brethren. And again, he affirms his love for them. Listen, my beloved brethren, the brothers I love, I want you to listen. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? He's saying, look, you've got to throw away that rotten garbage of your prejudices and you need to begin building and using the righteous ingredients ingredients which are revealed through God's sovereign choices, his sovereign decrees. God chose the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. In other words, you need to shift from a man-centered perspective to a God-centered perspective. From a human perspective, those with money are rich and those without it are poor. But from a divine perspective, those with faith are rich and those without it are poor. Who are the true poor? It is those without faith. James says that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith in the present and to be heirs of the kingdom in the future. They are the truly rich. They are princes and princesses who are living in those slums. They're heirs of the eternal kingdom with all of its glories. They have nothing now, they'll have everything then. Meanwhile, many of the rich have everything now, they'll have nothing then. To disdain, to disdain the poor, James says, is to disdain God's sovereign choice. You are at crossways with his choice and his perspective, so get your thinking in alignment with his. James then goes on to say that dishonoring the poor and showing favoritism towards the rich is foolish. It's even self-harmful. He says, you know, you're doing this of selfish motives, but it's not even helping you. He says in verse 6, you've dishonored the poor man, but is it not the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? He's saying, look, who was it that began this persecution of you? Wasn't it the elites, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the rich rulers of the country who, who sent out Saul and his goons after you? Who are the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? When you fled as refugees and you arrived with nothing in a foreign land, wasn't it the rich people who exploited your lack of options and took advantage of you? 
So why, he says, are you honoring those who dishonor you and dishonoring those who are exactly like you? He's saying, God chose the poor, yet you dishonor them. And you choose the rich, but they dishonor you. Not only do they dishonor you, he says in verse 7, they also dishonor the name of Christ. Verse 7, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? This is sad to say, but the va- not all, but the vast majority of wealthy people in this world are blasphemers. They blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called. See, the lesson is that when we show partiality, even if the motives seem noble, like these struggling refugees hoping this rich man could help them, when we show partiality, it only produces dishonor of men and blasphemy of God. That's what partiality produces, dishonor of men and blasphemy of God. So we need to first throw out the rotten ingredients of human prejudices and second, use the righteous ingredients which are contained in God's sovereign decrees. We need to remember God's sovereign choices. He chose Israel even though they were the smallest of all the peoples. He taught that the first will be last and the last will be first. He's telling us we have our our understanding of honor and dishonor all upside down. The first will be last, the last will be first. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul reminds the believers that's something we need to be reminded of. He says, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. He says, look, how many of you God has chosen the weak and the oppressed and the afflicted and the poor. He says, most of you are that. There's very few of you who are wealthy or powerful. There were a few in the New Testament. We see there's a few members of Caesar's household that were saved, but very few. There were a few rich people who were saved, but very few. The vast majority of Christians were poor and powerless, weak and despised. And since Most of us whom God has chosen are poor, weak, and powerless. It's foolish of us to prefer a face because they're rich, strong, or powerful. That's why I'm not into what I I call celebrity, like celebrity evangelism, right? Like the most effective person to reach the loss is some celebrity. Well, I mean, if he's a godly person, great. But just because he's a celebrity doesn't mean we should platform him. To produce unity which is truly sweet to the soul, the soul of all God's sheep, we need to follow God's recipe for building his church. And what are the ingredients he has chosen? 1 Corinthians 1 says that the ingredients that God has chosen are the weak, the foolish, the poor, and the low class. Those are his ingredients. And he is making something marvelous with them. The reality is that the vast majority of Christians throughout church history have been poor. Very few wealthy people have come to Christ, just as Jesus had warned. Remember, Jesus said, look, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say there would be no wealthy people who get saved, but the implication is crystal clear. There will be very few, and that has played out through church history. 
in all cultures, all times, it's been mostly the poor who have become Christians. In fact, in 178 AD, the Roman philosopher Celsus wrote that Christians were so poor that they were like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest, frogs holding a symposium amid a swamp, or worms in a convention in a corner of mud. He sat there in his wealthy elite palace and looked down on the slums and said, that's the Christians. That's how the world views us always have and always will. But God's view is what matters, and God's view is right there in verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? That's God's view. So if we want a healthy church, we need to joyfully accept and warmly receive the ingredients that he chooses. And that means that there should be a lot of poor feet crossing the red carpet we roll out for them. It means we need to treat the least of these the way we would treat Jesus himself. So use the ingredients God has chosen. And he has chosen the weak and the powerless, the despised and the base, the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Third step in the biblical recipe for Christian unity and biblical justice is to serve others the meals you would want to eat yourself, to treat others the way you would like to be treated. Look at verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James here exhorts us to obey the royal law. Why is it the royal law? Well, it's the royal law because it's the law given by King Jesus. It's his royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law, the golden rule. That's the solution. We must love our neighbor as ourselves. We must treat them the way we want to be treated, talk to them the way we want to be talked to, thought of. We must think about them the way we want them to think about us. And here is the key, the solution to every social problem, the linchpin and the, and the anchor and the ground and the beginning point of all true justice is to love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. We don't need theory this and ideology that. We need the royal law. We're all made in the image of God and therefore we all have equal value. So rich or poor, black or white, powerful or powerless, we are to treat everyone with love and kindness. We must be fair and impartial to all. We must never prefer a face. That's the royal law. And it is the key to replacing the sin of partiality with the virtue of impartiality. If you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. To love our neighbor as ourselves is the final and the crucial ingredient in God's recipe for unity and harmony. Serve others the meals of kindness and respect, which you would want to eat yourself. That's the recipe for biblical harmony and biblical justice. It's simple, but profound. So don't trade the royal law for anything. 
They're all counterfeits except for this. Furthermore, don't let anyone tell you that you have to adopt their ideology, say their slogans, or embrace their politics in order to do well. Right now, there's a great move in our society to try to basically berate people into adopting certain ideologies. If you don't embrace this ideology, you're a terrible person. What does verse 8 says? If, don't skip over the if, but if you are fulfilling the royal law, that royal law written in Scripture, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Isn't that encouraging? If you're obeying the royal law, you're doing well. Praise the Lord. Have your conscience at ease. And don't let anyone tell you you're not doing well if God says you are. He's the judge. It's his royal law we are judged by. So follow his recipe and rest in his verdict that you are doing well. But then again, that presupposes that you are doing well because verse 9 warns, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So obey the royal law and you'll have a clean conscience before God and men, and you'll have biblical unity and harmony with those around you. God's recipe for Christian harmony and biblical justice is to throw away the rotten ingredients of common human prejudices, to use the righteous ingredients which are revealed in God's sovereign decrees, and to serve others the meal you would want to eat yourself, to treat them the way you want to be treated. So let's be a church where God's recipe And only God's recipe is followed faithfully, fairly, lovingly, and compassionately. Lord, make us a church which is like you. You are impartial. May we never commit the sin of partiality. But may we love as you loved, accept one another, prefer one another as you have commanded. May we be those who are obedient to your royal law those who love our neighbors as ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.